Please pray with me. Father, I thank you for this morning. We thank you for your presence with us through your Spirit. And Lord, now I ask that our hearts would be transformed so that we would love you, long for the things that you desire. And Lord, I ask particularly this morning that we would be filled with your Spirit. Amen. It's impossible for me to hear that story about Elijah and Elisha and not get excited. If you want good reading this afternoon, start in the middle of 1 Kings and read through the middle of 2 Kings the narratives of Elijah and Elisha because they have some of the most astounding things happen to them of anywhere in the Bible. When reading about the prophets in the Bible, we usually tend to pay more attention to what they said than to what they did. But this passage is actually a lesson for us to start noticing their actions. For example, all of us know that Isaiah said, a virgin shall bear a son. We remember what he said. But how many of y'all remember this passage? In the year that the commander-in-chief who was sent by Sargon, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go, loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And Isaiah did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot, For three years as a sign and a portent, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives, naked and barefoot. Strange. Most of us probably had no idea that Isaiah had to walk around without clothing for three years. We pay attention to his words, but we forget the actions. Similarly, Jeremiah. Most of you could probably quote Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and for hope, to give you a future. Most of you probably know that. But how many of you remember the fact that the Lord said to Jeremiah, Go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist and do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord and I put it around my waist And the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise, go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in the cleft of a rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates, as the Lord commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide. So I went to the Euphrates and dug, and took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it, And behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Now, if you're curious, the symbolic actions of the prophets that God commands them to do are not always about underwear. They're not always about loincloths. Later, God tells Jeremiah, go and get a jar and take it in the presence of the leaders of Israel and smash it in their presence. They are full of symbolic actions. We remember their words, but forget these actions. They regularly did these sorts of things but we don't know what they meant unless we study. In fact, I would say that many of the actions of Jesus we've probably misunderstood 
because we don't understand how embedded they are in this whole long discourse of prophetic action where the prophets do things to communicate particular meaning to particular people. And so when Jesus curses the fig tree, we don't know what to do with it because we don't understand its place in this long history of symbolic action. Even many of his miracles are more than just helping somebody. They're symbolic actions that he's doing. I bring this all up because this passage from 2 Kings 2 is loaded with those symbolic actions. We join Elijah and Elisha in Gilgal, and we see them go from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho to across the Jordan. And for y'all, that's kind of like, okay, that's nice. That would be like saying, I'm going to go to the beach, and I leave from here and go to Charlottesville. The route doesn't make sense geographically. It's symbolic action. He goes from Gilgal. Gilgal's the place where the shame of the wilderness generation was rolled away. The name is a pun on the word rolled. It was rolled away because it was at Gilgal that those who were born in the wilderness were first circumcised. Their parents had failed to bring them into the covenant while in the wilderness. And at Gilgal, that was remedied. It was the place where shame was taken away. But then he walks from there to Bethel. Bethel was the place where Jacob saw the ladder going up into heaven a long time ago. But later, in the time of the conquest, Bethel was a place of great disobedience and shame because the people had been defeated by this little town, i.e. there. They were defeated by that town because the people, a particular family of the Israelites, had stolen treasure from Jericho that was meant to be given to God. Bethel was a place of shame because of that defeat. He walks then from there to Jericho, which is obviously the place of Israel's great victory. But Jericho was also a place of disobedience because Jericho wasn't supposed to be rebuilt. It was actually supposed to lie in ruins forever as a testimony. But under King Ahab, a man from Bethel rebuilt Jericho. It was a place of disobedience. And then he crosses the Jordan. All of these actions were symbolic actions meant to communicate them. He's walking through particular points in Israel's history, demonstrating something with it. That's, by the way, why all these sons of prophets are out there to watch them. They know what's happening. Something symbolic is going on. Even the crossing of the Jordan, the going back into the wilderness, is a symbolic action. It's like he's returning to the pre-Joshua narrative. He's leaving the promised land. He's communicating something very profound here. He's going back to where Moses died. Elijah is leaving the promised land. He's going back. It's this prophetic statement that the kingdom of Israel has to start over. He's going back to the time of Moses, leaving the promised land. But Elijah wasn't communicating that the kingdom of Israel was lost. It just needed to start over. After all, it was in the wilderness outside the Jordan where Moses took the mantle of leadership and placed it on Joshua's shoulders. Joshua was called to complete the building of the nation. Moses couldn't do that. He was left in the wilderness. So Elijah goes into the wilderness with Elisha like a new Moses, and the mantle of leadership is passed on to his servant, Elisha. And then what does Elisha do? Crosses back over the Jordan, just like Joshua, 
and promptly goes into the land and begins to rebuild the nation through his symbolic actions. It's this fascinating story, and it's loaded with symbolic actions. Even the crossing of the Jordan, the crossing of the waters is always a statement of God's deliverance for his people. He did it for Moses. He did it for Joshua. He did it for Elijah. He did it for Elisha. As an aside, and this is a different sermon, when the great prophets are confronted by the waters, God splits them for them as a sign of deliverance. But when God himself is confronted with the water, it doesn't need to be split. He walks straight across the top. All of these symbolic actions make more sense when we understand the way that the prophets moved and spoke and acted to communicate something. So this new Moses, Elijah, dies out in the wilderness or is taken to heaven, rather. And the mantle of leadership is given to his servant, the new Joshua, Elisha, who splits the Jordan walks into the land and begins to rebuild the nation. If you read the rest of the narrative, the rebuilding of the nation looks like cleansing it from sin. It looks like proclaiming the word of God. But it also looks like a series of prophetic actions. Again, doing symbolic things, providing water to a town that has no water, healing barrenness in miscarriages, providing and multiplying food, healing a leper, even raising the dead. The miracles that he does, and by the way, those should sound really familiar to you, providing food and water, raising the dead, healing the lepers, they should sound like, hey, wait a minute, I've heard those miracles before. The miracles that he does when he enters back into the land are the miracles that in God's economy mean, I'm building a kingdom. I'm building a kingdom. Elijah acted like the new Moses, and he goes off into the wilderness to be taken away. The mantle of leadership is passed to this new Joshua, and he goes in to finish the ministry that Elijah had begun. And he finished it by actually doing the miracles that mean God is building a kingdom. The miracles of feeding, the miracles of healing, the miracles of deliverance. As an aside, there were many prophets in the Old Testament there's only three of them that we have record of doing miracles. Elijah, Elisha, and Moses. Something significant is happening here. Something powerful is being communicated. When a prophet starts doing miracles, this is symbolic action, prophetic action, raised up to the highest degree. Something powerful is happening here. The miracles that these three prophets do are actually God's acts of deliverance for his people. They really do save them and preserve them. When Elisha takes bread and multiplies it, it actually delivers these people in that moment. These miracles are not just, though, deliverance for the people, God's acts of salvation. They're also God's refutation of the false gods. Every one of the plagues was a refutation of a false god. God was speaking directly to the Egyptians, your gods are not the true gods. Similarly, every single one of Elijah and Elisha's miracles were refutations of the false gods of Canaan. They weren't random acts of power. That fire from heaven on Carmel, the splitting of the waters, bread provided, all of these actions are refutations of false gods. If you're curious about that, it's fascinating reading what the pagans believed and what these miracles would have meant to those particular people. They were refutations of their gods. 
But even more than those two things, God's acts of deliverance and the refutations of the false gods, these miracles are demonstrations of the nature of God's kingdom. I want to cling to this point for a minute. Because each of the miracles that Elisha proceeds to do after crossing the Jordan and coming back in demonstrate what God's kingdom looks like. Lepers are healed in God's kingdom. The hungry are fed in God's kingdom. The dead are raised to life in God's kingdom. The barren are given children in God's kingdom. The water is purified in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is the sort of place where these things happened. This begins to help us to understand the nature of his kingdom. Because if it's in his kingdom that lepers are healed, that the dead are raised to life, that water is purified, that bread is provided, that demons are cast out, if this is the nature of God's kingdom, we can understand that it's in God's kingdom where the brokenness of the world begins to be healed. God's kingdom is the place where the problems of the world are solved. We see this through the nature of these miracles. This, by the way, is why it shouldn't surprise us when Jesus does these same sort of miracles. After all, he is building the kingdom of God that Elijah and Elisha were only prophetically pointing towards. He's actually building it. And so he comes in doing what these others had only hinted at. Moses, Elijah, Elisha, their lives, the work that they did, their miracles, their hints, their prophetic foreshadowings, these prophetic actions are pointing towards something. A day when God's kingdom would come and this is what it would look like. They weren't the final thing. They weren't the real thing. After all, Elisha goes back into Israel and does these actions that demonstrate the nature of God's kingdom. But Israel still falls and is sent into exile. He did not build the kingdom of God. He pointed towards it. But when Jesus arrives, the real thing is there. Because all these prophets were doing actions that pointed toward the Messiah who would actually heal brokenness, who would actually deliver people from demons, who would actually feed the hungry, and build the kingdom of God. By the way, this is how I know that God actually wants your healing and restoration and mine. This is a testimony to you that God actually wants you fed in the hungry places of your soul. This is this billboard screaming at you that God desires you to be free of places of bondage and oppression. This is what God's kingdom always looks like. People fed, people healed, people delivered. The prophetic actions pointing towards the true Messiah who would actually do these things. Bondage broken, sickness healed, sight restored. Their actions are pointing towards what Jesus would ultimately do. In Luke 24, Jesus explained to the couple that he met on the road to Emmaus that all of the scriptures pointed to him. They all revolved around him. Later that same evening, in the upper room with his disciples, he did the same thing. He pointed to them that all of the scriptures pointed back to him, revolved around him. It's like he is the DNA at the heart of the scriptures and that all of it only makes sense in light of his life. All of it explains him. We tend to see the easy things. A virgin shall give birth and go, yeah, that points to Jesus. 
But 2 Kings 2, just as much, points to Jesus. This revolves around him, helps us understand him, points to him. This scene is no different. Elijah and Elisha are prophetic foreshadowings in this passage of our Lord Jesus. They're what theologians call a type, a first runner to come that points to the real thing. Think about the parallels. Just like Elisha, he came from beyond the wilderness, crossed back into the Jordan to begin to build his kingdom. We find him out in the wilderness being tempted by Satan and then brought back into the land. And what's the first thing that he does? Goes to the synagogue, reads a passage about the messianic work of healing those who are sick and freeing those from bondage and said, this is being fulfilled right here and now. Elijah's whole life was a prophetic foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. These things that they did, he also did. But what's astounding is how much more Rather than just purifying water, Elisha does that. Moses did that. Rather than just purifying water and giving his people something to drink that would sustain them for a day, he took waters of purification and transformed it into wine, symbolizing the wedding feast to come. He gave his people to drink of his very blood, not just life for a day, but life for eternity. He's taking their actions and taking them to the full extent of where they were pointing because he is the Messiah. Rather than just feeding the hunger, he did that. They did it for like 100 people. He did it for thousands. He took it up a level. But rather than just feeding the hungry with food that would last for a couple of days, he offered his flesh as food. Do you see how this works? Their actions point us forward. They were designed to help the people of Jesus' day understand what they were looking at when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Manna points forward. The bread that Elisha offers points forward. And ultimately, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, it even points forward to him saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood in John 6. He didn't just raise the dead like they did. Elijah and Elisha both raised a dead person. Jesus did that, but he did more because he was raised from the dead, the firstborn of the dead, the firstborn of the resurrection. They were portraying the kingdom of God through a few scattered miracles, in other words. But he came in, building it in its fullness, showing what those things were pointed towards. It's multifaceted. It's a rich picture. God used these prophets to heal, to protect, to deliver his people. But in their actions, he was preparing people for the Messiah, for the true thing to come. Just as Elijah began a ministry that only Elisha could complete, so John the Baptist began a ministry that Jesus completed. Just as Elijah spent most of his time in the wilderness, so John the Baptist spent most of his time in the wilderness. Just as Elisha came in from the wilderness to build the land, so Jesus came in from the wilderness to build the land. It's a beautiful and multifaceted, rich story. But it goes deeper still. Because Elijah is not just a type, a prophetic foreshadowing of Jesus. He's not just a foreshadowing of John the Baptist, excuse me. He's actually a type, a foreshadowing of Jesus himself. Think for a second at what happened to Elijah in this passage. He was taken away. He ascended to heaven. This is a foreshadowing of the ascension of Jesus Christ. 
the master taken away, and the one who's left behind on the ground, Elisha, is actually a foreshadowing of the disciples themselves. The Lord Jesus taken away, and the mantle of leadership is given to the people who follow. Elisha gave the perfect demonstration of what it looks like to be a disciple. I will follow wherever you go. Give me your spirit. I will cling to you in all circumstances. And just as Elisha Elisha received the spirit of his master, the spirit that God had given Elijah, so Jesus gave his spirit to his disciples. He gave to them what they needed to continue after he ascended on high. And the power of the spirit, they were actually told to proclaim the kingdom, to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to feed the hungry. If you think that all of this comparison, by the way, is just a little bit too much, that Elijah symbolizes Jesus, that Elisha symbolizes the disciples, Jesus himself made this comparison. Somebody came up to him and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he said, no one after putting their hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You say, what was he talking about? He was reminding them of the call of Elisha. When Elijah called Elisha, and Elisha was plowing at that moment, and he took his plow, and he broke it, burned it, slaughtered the oxen, offered them as a sacrifice, and followed him. Jesus was making the comparison that he was an Elijah to his disciples. They were the Elisha to follow after him. And Elisha shows us what the disciple looks like. Wherever you go, I will go. The Lord has sent me here to Bethel. I will follow you there. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. I will follow you there. This is what the disciple looks like. I will follow wherever you go. Elisha also shows us the disciples saying, give me your spirit. Give me your spirit. This for Elijah is difficult because he can't actually give the Spirit of God. And so he simply says to him, if you see me being taken, that will be a testimony that God will answer your prayer. To give the Spirit, though, was not a difficult thing for Jesus, because looking at his new Elishas, his disciples, he merely breathed on them and said, receive the Spirit. The Spirit is his to freely give. What was difficult for Elijah was easy for Jesus as the Son of God. It's a beautiful picture. But the point of this all for us is that it wasn't just the 12 who stood in the place of Elisha. We also are called to walk as the new Elisha, continuing the work that Jesus began. We are called to participate in the building of the kingdom. We are called to participate in the building of the kingdom by the healing of the sick. These symbolic actions still hold true. We are called to participate in the building of the kingdom by the feeding of the hungry. We are called to participate in the building of the kingdom by the breaking of oppression, the breaking of bondage, giving sight in the darkness to those who are blind, physically, emotionally, spiritually. We are called to continue in the work of the master, building his kingdom. We're kidding ourselves if we think that we can be Christians and not be called into this work. This is what we are to do. Like Elisha, following after Elijah, we are to take up the mantle. Because that's what happened in the ascension. That Jesus gave the mantle 
of authority and power to his people, to his church. And he said, wear this and continue my work. That mantle of authority and power did not die in the first generation of the church. It's been passed down even to now. And we are called to actually participate in the building of the kingdom. This is what the Lord desires of us, to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to give sight to the blind. In all these, we're thinking physical, emotional, spiritual. Wherever the person is broken, the kingdom breaks in and says healing is available to you. Like Elisha, we are called to take this mantle and wear it. But like Elisha, this will only happen if the Spirit is actually given to us. We cannot actually do this by our own strength. If you go out right now and say, I will build the kingdom of God, you will fail. But if the Spirit builds the kingdom of God through you, you will see the work of God coming out of your very life. Elisha said to Elijah, give me your spirit. And Elijah said that is difficult because he didn't have the authority to do it. But Jesus, as the son in the house rather than a mere servant, had full authority. And he said, if you ask the father for the spirit, he will give it to you. This is Luke 11. And so if you look at your own life and say, I can't even begin to participate in the building of the kingdom until there's this, all this stuff cleaned up inside of me, ask the Father for the Spirit to restore you. If you say, I want to follow, I want to participate in what Jesus has called me into, don't step out the door without saying, Lord, yet I need your Spirit. Beg the Father for the Spirit. My prayer for this church is that it's a place where the Spirit of God is thick. The Spirit has been given to us at our baptism, but this is not a once-and-done thing in the Bible. That God anoints people with the Spirit over and over for the work that he has called them to do. If there is something ahead of you that the Lord has placed in your path, ask him for the Spirit, and then go step forward in confidence into the work that he's given you to do. Ask him for the Spirit, to empower you. Elisha shows us the posture of a true disciple. He follows wherever the master goes. He picks up the mantle, the way of life, the clothing, the thinking, the loving. He does everything. This is what the mantle symbolizes. Everything about the master becomes my way of life. I discard myself and I become like him. But he shows us in the end that the disciple always says to the master, yet I cannot do this without your spirit. And so let that be the prayer that guides you this week. Lord, I cannot do this without your spirit. I cannot do this without your spirit. Amen.